I'm going to pray, and then if you have your Bible, uh, we'll open it up to where we're going to be today. So let's, let's pray. Great God, our Father, you are kind to us. You're merciful. You're gracious. We can know you through your Son, Jesus. You've made a way for sinners to be saved. And it's a free gift through your Son. Thank you, God. We love you. We are so thankful that today we get to gather here as a church family. We get to study your word. We get to seek you. That we might know more of you. We might know how to obey you and honor you with our life. Help us, Lord. Help us hear and obey your word. And help me speak only what you want me to speak. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So this is a part of the Rethinking the Church series that Aaron has been walking through. And I'm uh, privileged with speaking about missions and evangelism. The task of the church to the world. Missions and evangelism. The task of the church to the world. We're going to be in Acts 13 and 14 today. Acts 13 and 14. So you can find that right after the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. Although I'm sure Miss Patty Chance taught you that in uh, Bible drills. and uh, But... Just to remind you, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. Uh, the author of Acts is Luke, the disciple. And what, I know it's hard when we just jump straight into the middle of a book. You know, because I don't know what last week's uh, lesson on the church, I don't know what passage of the Bible it was. Um, it probably wasn't Acts. It might have been. But so I'm going to give a little quick context. Acts or the Acts of the Apostles, is about after Jesus uh, died, was crucified, was buried, and he rose again, he was, in the very first part of Acts, he was appearing to his disciples. And right as he was about to ascend back up into heaven to be with the Father, he said, you disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Acts 1.8, Jesus said that, that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And so what we have from Acts 1.8 to now in Acts 13 is how the gospel is spreading through Jerusalem and Judea. It hasn't really went out to the ends of the earth yet. Um, Specifically, Acts 1 through 8 is all about the gospel spreading in Jerusalem. And then a man named Stephen was stoned to death for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when he died, disciples were scattered throughout the region. And so then the gospel started to spread from Jerusalem, not only there, but out to Judea and Samaria, the neighboring countrysides and areas. It'd be like spreading from Auburn out to Montgomery and Columbus, and out to Atlanta and Nashville. It's starting to spread, but the gospel has not yet went 
to the ends of the earth. And so that's where we're going to pick it up. To give you a context, that's where we're at when we start to read Acts 13. Okay? So my first point today is about the church of missions. I know this whole series is all about rethinking the church. The church of missions. We're going to see that the church is essential to missions. Not just a secondary part, but it is the vehicle by which the mission of God is accomplished. It is God's intended means for mission. So let's read just the first five verses here. Acts 13, 1 through 5. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there, they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. Okay. So, the church of missions. What I want you to see here, and I'm going to have to infer some of this, and we won't necessarily see it all completely in Acts 13 and 14, but knowing all of Scripture, um, what we see is the church is God's plan A for world evangelization. What I mean by world evangelization is seeing the gospel or evangelism, seeing evangelism happen throughout all of the world. The church is God's plan A. There is no plan B. It's not uh, the mission of God and evangelism is given to the church. That's why here in verse 1, it says, now there were in the church at Antioch. And what's happening? They're worshiping. They're fasting. That means they're, they're not eating. They're taking a season away from that. Maybe we don't know how long. Maybe they just skip dinner. Maybe they skip breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But they're, they're seeking the Lord, saying, God, I want you more than I want food. I want to know you. And they're worshiping. They're fasting. They're praying. And in the church. And at that moment, that's when the Holy Spirit says, set apart Barnabas and Saul. Later, his name is changed to Paul. Set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And it, it's important to know that the church is God's plan A. Not a Bible study small group that we attend. Bible study small groups are really great. Especially if they're connected to the local church. But I know... like. Uh, I've been employed, for example, actually with a nonprofit organization for about six years. A nonprofit organization means people make gifts and donations to this organization. Uh, so maybe FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, would be an example of a nonprofit. Or Relay for Life would be an example of a nonprofit. 
or Samaritan's Purse, who does Operation Christmas Child and shoeboxes. That's a nonprofit. But you see, the reason I bring that up, nonprofit organizations are not God's plan A for reaching the world. While they're beautiful and they, they, they do great things, there's something unique and special that was given to the bride of Christ, the church. That's why the first missionaries were sent out from a church here in Acts 13. Barnabas and Saul are the first sent missionaries. Now, people were on mission in Acts chapter 1 through 12, but they weren't missionaries. They, they were on mission to make disciples. They were evangelists, but they had not been sent out formally from a church to go start new churches. And that's what we have here. We'll unpack that as we move on. But I just wanted you to, to, to think about that. And, and another way we can know that the church is so central and as a vehicle by which the mission of God is accomplished is consider this. One-third of the New Testament, one-third of our New Testament is letters to churches. Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians. That's, that's not just mythical stuff that was written down. That, that was letters mailed to churches. The church in Rome, the church in Colossae, the church in Philippi, the church in Galatia. So we know the church is important because most of our New Testament is letters mailed to churches to instruct them on how to keep obeying the Great Commission, how to keep faithful to God and to His mission. And that's what we're talking about, mission and evangelism, the task of the church. And what's beautiful here, this is kind of a side note, not necessarily essential to our, our uh, sermon today, but what's beautiful is the diversity in Acts 13 at Antioch. Look with me in verse 1. There were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Okay, so we see diverse giftings, prophets and teachers. So everyone wasn't a clone. Everyone wasn't the same gifting from the Holy Spirit. And how freeing is that? How good is that that John might be different than Jennifer? And Jim might be different than John. But you have a place in the church. You have a role in the church. Some of us are really outgoing. Some of us are more introverted. Some of us are really good at service and compassion and hospitality. And some of us are really good at leadership and teaching and evangelism. And some of us have the gift of faith and giving and mercy. These are all gifts of the Holy Spirit. And we all have, a, when we become a believer, the Holy Spirit enters us and we have a gift or gifts from the Spirit of God. And it's okay to be different and to have different gifts. In fact, we desperately need different gifts in the church. And so here we see prophets and teachers. We see diversity. But we don't only see diversity in how the Holy Spirit gifts people. And I hope that encourages you. That it's okay to be different. You're unique. You're made by God for a purpose. 
But we also see diversity in ethnicity. Okay, how do we know that? Simeon, who is called Niger, literally, my footnote says it is a Latin word meaning black or dark. We're, we're almost guaranteed that he was given this name because of dark skin. And that's beautiful. That we, ha- we have Barnabas, a Levite, I believe. Um, so he, he's native, uh, native to Israel. So he would have been Middle Eastern. Then you have Simeon, who, who's dark-skinned. Then we have Lucius of Cyrene. I didn't know where Cyrene was, and I was a history major in college. If I didn't know where Cyrene was, you probably didn't either. Cyrene is in Libya, which is North Africa, just near Egypt. So we have, we have someone, Barnabas, from the Middle East, Israel. Then we have Simeon, who's from Niger. Then we have uh, then we have. Uh, Lucius, who's from Libya, neighboring Egypt. And then there's Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Tetrarch is a fancy word for a ruler in the government. A ruler in the government. So Menaean's probably a Roman citizen, and that's how he's buddies with Herod. He might not be a Roman citizen. We don't know that for sure, but he's probably upper class in socially. And so that's also a beautiful thing. We have social elites in the church. The church isn't just for the impoverished. It's not just for the middle class. Yes, it's for the social elites, the people that are friends with the rulers of the government. The church is for everybody. Diverse giftings, diverse ethnic, ethnic backgrounds, and diverse social class. And so we need a diverse church to reach a diverse world. That's one of the reasons the church is God's plan A. And just so you know, no role in the mission of God is more valuable in the sight of God than others. If you're a missionary or if you are staying home and being a faithful disciple maker who leads impact on Wednesday nights, missions, uh, missionary prayer and care, is our Wednesday night children's group, and many of y'all came up through that. If you lead impact, or if you grow up and you become an adult and you lead equipping groups, or you help out with food pantry, or you help out with our special needs ministry, and you're making disciples, and you're giving financially, that role is just as valuable and obedient as the role of the one who hears the Lord call them to missions and says, here my Lord, send me, I will go. I don't want to elevate one role over the other in the church. We see in Corinthians that do not let the eye say to the hand, I have no need of you. Each member in the church is valuable. So hear that, brothers and sisters. We must obey. If God calls us to go, we must obey. But if God calls us to stay just as much, we must obey. And both are valuable. Okay, so, also as we're thinking about the church of missions, let's look here more closely at verses 2 and 3. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. 
What I want you to see is the immediate obedience of the church. The church of mission. You see, I believe that a church that God delights to use in mission and a church that God will use more often in mission is a church that worships the Lord and obeys the Lord. We see it right here. They gather together to worship. They gather together to worship. And that's what we're here to do today. And we do it on Wednesday, and sometimes we do it on other days of the week. So first, the church of mission must be a worshiping church. If our hearts are cold this morning, I invite you, ask God right now, even in your seat, God, warm my heart to worship you. Warm my heart to be sensitive that this really matters. Souls of men and women and boys and girls, it matters. Your glory, it matters. Warm my heart to worship you. Pray that prayer. And then, pray this prayer. God, I want to obey you. Because the church that God delights to use is a worshiping church and an obedient church. A worshiping church and an obedient church. So let's be that. Let's worship and then obey. All right, now, that was point number one, the church of missions. Now we're going to look at what is the task of missions? What is the task of missions? For that, we're going to flip uh, over to verse 26. Okay, we're going to go at lightning speed here because I, I want to quickly, uh, well, before we read, read this, uh, this part, let me just talk a little bit about what missions is, what it isn't, what evangelism is, what it isn't. Missions should not be defined as missions if evangelism is absent. What is evangelism? Evangelism, we'll get into a bigger definition later, but it's sharing the gospel. How you can be saved. How the dead can be alive in Christ. Missions should not be defined as missions if evangelism is completely absent or missing. Because you see, if evangelism is missing... It's not biblical missions. People may call it missions, but really it, it's probably humanitarian aid or social reform, health care, moral improvement, financial wisdom. And those are good things. It's good to dig wells. It's good to give Christmas gifts to needy people. It's good to teach education and literacy to people who can't read. It's good to have health care so that children don't die from preventable diseases. Those are good things. But if, and, and I will say this, usually in missions you need to do those things as an as a avenue to create an opportunity to preach the gospel. So do those things and preach the gospel. But if you only do those things, if you only do health care and education, and clean water, and you don't preach the gospel, it's not missions. We're missing the most important part. So what is evangelism? A long definition here. Evangelism is intentionally preparing and pursuing opportunities 
to personally share the gospel of Jesus Christ with those who are unsaved in the power of the Holy Spirit while leaving the results to God. Intentionally preparing for and pursuing relationships for the purpose of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with the unsaved and leaving the results to God and doing this all in the power of the Holy Spirit. That is what one of my professors, uh, that was his definition of evangelism. It's really long. You could just say trying to share the gospel with others. Trying to share the gospel. But I like how he said while leaving the results to God. Another professor named Don Whitney said all evangelism is successful evangelism. Isn't that puzzling? All evangelism is successful evangelism. Well, what he means there is your success in evangelism, brother, sister, your success is not defined by the results. It's not defined by your friend or your brother or sister, father or mother saying, yes, I repent and believe, I trust in Jesus. No. That's, that's determined by God. Your success is obeying. Obeying, opening your mouth and telling others. See, God is the author of salvation. Jesus even said in John 6, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. That means no matter how witty you are with your analogies, no matter how crafty you are with your presentation skills, no matter how good of a public speaker you are, no matter how good with words, it doesn't matter unless God draws them to Himself. We must be born again of the Holy Spirit, not of man's creative strategies and sharing. So take comfort in that. You can breathe a deep sigh of relief that when we obey God in evangelism, we're successful. We're successful because the results aren't up to us. If they reject or if they accept, it's, it's up to God. And so, now that we're thinking about the task of missions, and we've clarified what missions and evangelism are and are not, um, let's look at Acts 13, okay? Verses 26 and following. I want to see a snapshot of what did Paul do for missions. That'd be a good place to start. What did Paul do? All right, so what he's doing here is he's preaching. We're picking up in the middle of a sermon. He's preaching, and basically up to this point, he said, hey, God's good to Israel. Even when they were turning away from him, he put judges over them. They turned away from the judges. He put kings over them. And then he, he said of David, I'm going to have an offspring come through the line of David. And he's talking about Jesus. So Paul's preaching the Old Testament to him, and now here we go, verse 26 is where we pick up in the sermon. Paul says, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Him, that Him is Jesus, they did not recognize Jesus, nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath. Uh, fulfilled them by condemning him. 
And they found in him, they found in Jesus, no guilt worthy of death. They asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree, laid him in a tomb. But God, raising him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. All right, now let's skip down uh, here to verse uh, 38. Verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Okay, we'll stop there. So, what we see here is Paul sharing the gospel. Paul sharing the gospel. And I, I want to highlight, I think, five components that we see here in his gospel presentation. And I think we see it in others throughout the Bible. And a, a pastor that you're all familiar with named David Platt uh, highlighted this to me probably almost a decade ago. And uh, that is five points. When we're preaching the gospel... What are five essential elements in evangelism? What are five essential elements? And I think it's essential here in Paul's sermon as well. The character of God, number one. Who is God? The character of God. So when we're starting sharing the gospel, we don't need to just say, you're really bad. You're a sinner. Let's start with, who is God? The character of God. So we see that. As God, he starts in the Old Testament talking about how God was faithful. God loved Israel. He, he multiplied them in number when they were in Egypt. He gave them judges. He gave them kings. He promised an offspring. So we see that he's painting a picture of a good, holy God. So first, in evangelism, what's the character of God? Second, the sinfulness of man. So to contrast God's character, you can look at our own character, the sinfulness of man, number two. And how does he do that? Well, look again at 1327. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterance of, utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. They condemned Jesus. They killed Jesus, the very one who was promised to come rescue them. The very one who God was sending to them. They didn't recognize him, and that's because they're sinners. And, and in many of Paul's other sermons, he's much more out front. Like, uh, you, you are the ones, lawless men, who crucified Jesus to the cross. And that's even true for us. No, I wasn't there at Calvary on Golgotha. But just as the hymn we sing, it was my sin that held him there. 
my guilt upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. Do you feel that? That you're, you're guilty for the death of Jesus? We are, we, blood must be shed for the forgiveness of sins. But it was God's plan that instead of our blood be shed, His own righteous Son, His own innocent Son. So I hope you don't stay there in feeling that guilt. I hope you, you rejoice in the gift of salvation. And that's when we're preaching the Gospel, that's what we want to communicate. First, the character of God. God is good. God is holy. Second, the sinfulness of man. Man is wicked. Man is dead in sin. We've all turned away from God. All have sinned. We're responsible for crucifying God's Son. But it doesn't stop there. We don't stop in evangelism there. Third, the sufficiency of Christ. The sufficiency of Christ. You see, it says that in verse 38, let it be known to you that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Christ is sufficient. He finished the work that we could not finish. Christ is sufficient. He offers forgiveness of sins. So that is part of evangelism. What is God's character? How is man sinful? Character of God, sinfulness of man, sufficiency of Christ. Fourth, the necessity of faith. The necessity of faith. Faith is necessary and essential. And we must communicate that in evangelism. Look with me here in verse 38. Oh, 39. And by Him, by Jesus, everyone who believes is freed. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed, right? Everyone who believes is freed from everything everything from which you cannot be freed by the law of Moses. You see, for generations they tried to carry and obey the weight of the law of Moses. Honor the Sabbath. Don't touch this. Don't eat this. Don't do that. Do this. And they couldn't. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Torah, the law of Moses was too heavy to bear. And for you and I, we couldn't bear it. We fall short. We stumble. We fall. We stumble. We fall. We get up. And we just couldn't do it. And that's what we want to communicate to people when we're in evangelism. is so that then they see that they can't be freed by simply moral improvement. By being a good person. Oh, I'll just be a good person. No. This says here in verse 39, you can't be freed that way, but you can be free by belief. Everyone who believes in Him will be free. So, necessity of faith, number four. So we've got character of God. When we're preaching the gospel, paint a big picture of God's goodness and holiness. Character of God. Second, Paul is showing the sinfulness of man. Third, he's showing the sufficiency of Christ. Christ is sufficient as a Savior. Fourth, he's showing the necessity of faith. You must believe or you'll perish. And fifth, the urgency of eternity. The urgency of eternity. So we see that where he gives a warning. He says, look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. In verse 41. And he, he says in verse 40, beware. Beware. 
don't perish. And, and so I like to, when I'm doing evangelism, communicate the urgency of eternity. Like, hey, if you reject this, this is life or death. This is important. This is vital. God, I've communicated the truth to you, and He will judge sin. He's judged sin for you by crucifying His Son so that you can be innocent and forgiven. But if you reject God's sacrifice of Christ, you will be judged forever, separated from Him in a place called hell. And, and now, it's easier to communicate that from a pulpit and you're all in the, like, out here seated. You do it very lovingly and gently. It, it, might, it might seem something like this. I have a brother named Philip. He lives down near Miami, Florida. He was raised in the church. Uh, he, he's not following Christ right now. I've shared with him a lot of times, and it's, it sounds something like this. Philip, you know I love you. You're an engineer. You, you oversee building projects out on I-95 where people are running 90 miles per hour. I'm worried that a crazy drunk driver might hit you. I'm worried. I love you, Philip. I love you, brother. I want you to be saved. I want you to know God and have eternal life. I, I just wanted, wondered what you thought of what I shared with you today. It sounds something like that. Just reminding them, hey, any day could be our last day. Hey, I just, I just want to remind you, this is urgent. This is important. And Paul was doing that. Okay? And so I've, uh, that is part of the task of missions, evangelism. But I, I'm going to go in hyperspeed here because we're getting close to ending time. But... I want you to know that missions can't stop with evangelism. Missions isn't complete when you just preach the gospel. You see, if we were to read all of chapter 14, what we would see is that the New Testament pattern of churches participating in missions is this. Missionaries are sent out. Missionaries enter new places. They preach the gospel, they make disciples, they form churches, they develop leaders, and they exit. They exit, they leave. So evangelism is a part of missions, but evangelism in and of itself is not missions. Missions must include evangelism, but it must also include more than that. Because think about it, Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples. He didn't say make converts. Make disciples. And he said, teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. So how can you teach them to obey all that I've commanded you if you only go and do evangelism? And I think you all understand that. Like, duh, we've got to do more than evangelism. Uh, that's why we have equipping groups. That's why we, have, that's why we sing. We have choir and band. We worship God. We, that's why we have food pantry. We care for widows and orphans. That's why we go on mission trips. Like, there's more to healthy church than just evangelism and so we, we won't study it all uh, but I'll just remind run through those again missions is entry of missionaries to new places evangelism discipleship forming new churches developing leaders and then exiting 
And that happens in Acts chapter 14. So look, look with me here at 14.19. Look with me at chapter 14.19. I want to I want to tie it all together here of how we see uh, the mission of the church. It says Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul. They dragged him out of the city. They supposed that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So what happens there? Paul stoned, left for dead. He gets back up and he goes back to keep preaching. And he goes to the next city and preaches some more. And then he returns back to each city that he had been in. And he strengthens them. That's discipleship, right? Entry, evangelism, discipleship. So he's discipling them. How does he disciple them? Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That's usually not our discipleship that Lifeway curriculum gives us, right? You will suffer. But that's Paul's basic discipleship through many tribulations. And then church formation. They're fasting, they're praying, and the Holy Spirit appoint, they, I mean, sorry, they appoint elders in the church. So that's church formation, leadership development, and then they exit. So missions needs to include all of these elements. It's not just humanitarian aid. And how do we know this is what the Holy Spirit wanted? All right, this is cool. Now, to, to really tie a bow on it, look with me at chapter 14, verse 26 and 27. This is, this is cool. They, they exit, and where are they going? And from there, they sail to Antioch. That's where they started, and that's where we started today. From there, they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived, they gathered the church together and declared all that God had done. They went back to Antioch where it says they were commended for the work that they had fulfilled. Or, as the that's the ESV, fulfilled. If you have the NIV, it says for the work they had completed. Or if you have the NASB version, for the work they had accomplished. And remember in Acts 13, the Holy Spirit said, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I had called them. What was the work that the Holy Spirit called them to? They had accomplished it. They completed it. They fulfilled it. So what is the work of missions? What is the work of the church? The work of missions is entry, entering new places, evangelism, discipleship, church formation, leader development, and exit. And they saw by the power of the Holy Spirit those things happen. 
And whether you're a missionary or uh, someone who stays in sins, you have a part to play in that. And why do we have a part to play? Because the goal of missions. The goal of missions. This is the goal. Worship. You've heard this. You've heard this here. Missions exist because worship does not exist. We're not just trying to go uh, help people out. Help them have a better life. We're trying to see God be worshipped. That's what we long for. We want sinners to be saved. So the goal of missions, I'm not going to read it because you all are so familiar with it. Revelation 7-9, every nation, tribe, tongue, and language around the throne saying salvation belongs to God. Salvation doesn't belong to self. Salvation doesn't belong to being a good person or Prophet Muhammad or Buddha. Salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne. Salvation belongs to King Jesus who was killed for us and rose again. The Lamb of God. That's who salvation belongs to. So that's our goal. And that's the fuel. The fuel of missions is worship and the goal of missions is worship. Why do I say the fuel of missions is worship? In Acts 13.1, they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. It all started with worship. So as we, as we, Lakeview Baptist Church, are worshiping the Lord, that's our fuel and that must be our end goal. And one day, all of us are going to gather around the great throne and worship God with people like Lucius from Libya and Herod, the lifelong, or Menaean, the lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and, and Saul of Tarsus, which is modern-day Turkey. And, and we're going to be there with, with, with them all, every tribe, every tongue, every nation and language, and it's all going to be about Him, Jesus Christ. That's the goal of missions. So thank you for letting me share this morning about the church of missions the task of missions, and the goal of missions.